0: Well, turn your Bibles to the Book of Ephesians, would you? Ephesians. We are starting my first book study with Summit Bible Church this uh, almost said this morning, this afternoon, and so I am excited to start the Book of Ephesians with you. Would you turn there? Ephesians is in the New Testament, uh, past the Gospels to the right and into the Epistles. Hopefully you find it. If you have trouble, look at the uh, concordance at the, at the front. Uh, and uh, I'm excited to, to start this book. So you might ask, why Ephesians, Morgan? Why Ephesians? Well, the book of Ephesians comes with some pretty hearty recommendation from history uh, and theologians and pastors and others. And let me just read a few. Uh, Apparently, John Calvin recommends this as his favorite letter. Now, you'll understand why as you move on through chapters 1, 2, and 3. Famous theologians J. Armitage Robinson and C.H. Dodd call it the crown of Paul's writings. Peter T. O'Brien, modern theologian, recommends it by stating that it is one of the most significant documents ever written. And only Samuel Taylor Coleridge, English poet and philosopher, takes it to the highest level. And he claims Ephesians is the divinest composition of man. Wow. High praise for this book. And then John MacArthur said, uh, in quoting from a, a sermon, a message that he preached, he said that preaching through the book of Ephesians was the catalyst that launched Grace Community Church early in his ministry there. Significant book with significant application in our lives. But the greatest recommendation for a book for us to preach or for me to preach and us to walk through together, it comes from within the book itself. So would you turn in your book of Ephesians here to chapter 4 and just look at verse 1 with me. This is the reason that I chose to preach through the book of Ephesians. And it's found in verse 1 here. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, I, Paul speaking here, Paul, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I, Paul, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the of the calling to which you've been called. Summit Bible Church, that is my desire for you. That was the Apostle Paul's desire for the Ephesians. And this is my desire for you, for us together, to live worthy of your calling. To live worthy of your calling. See, there is both depth and breadth to our calling. As Christians, would you write those two words down? Depth and breadth. What do I mean by that? Ephesians articu- articulates it profoundly. First, there is a depth of theological riches in our calling, there is depth in the doctrine of salvation that is articulated for us in the book of Ephesians. If you look at the first three chapters, it talks all about how we are saved and the incredible riches in our salvation. John MacArthur said that Ephesians is the bank for the believer. This is your spiritual checkbook. Every time you write a check out of this bank, your funds are non-diminished. In other words, you can write checks on all the riches of God and salvation as often as you want, for as much as you want, and never diminish the account. We could plummet the depths of Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 for a lifetime and not pull up every little morsel, every little coin that makes up the riches of our salvation. So there's a great depth in our calling that ephesians explains to us and summit a deeper knowledge of god a deeper understanding of our salvation will result in a greater worship of god a greater worship of him with our lives so it's good for us it's good for us to get this depth of understanding And Ephesians provides that for us. So first, there's a depth to our calling. And secondly, there is a breadth to our calling. There is secondly, a breadth of practical instructions in the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3, depth of theology. Chapters 4 through 6, breadth of practical instruction. Listen, Ephesians leaves no stone unturned in your life. Ephesians is going to address your marriage. Ephesians is going to address church life. Ephesians is going to address the workplace. Ephesians will address the home. Every area of your life is addressed in the book of Ephesians. I like to say it this way. The whole man is on the table. Men, your whole life will be on the table as we study the book of Ephesians. The man's theology His ministry, his marriage role, his parenting, his work ethic, his purity will all be addressed in the book of Ephesians. Ladies, the whole woman is on the table as well. The whole woman, her theology, her ministry, her marriage role, her parenting, her words, her attitude, and everything else. It's all addressed here in the practical instruction of Ephesians. Ephesians, and not just individual instruction for our lives that we can take away and apply, you know, in the workplace, wherever it is that we go. There is corporate instruction in the book of Ephesians. The whole church is on the table as we study this book together. Her theology, her ministries, her families, the marriages, the singles that make up the church, her unity And her testimony to the outside world. The breadth of practical instruction that comes out of the depth of our theological riches. Will result in our growth. Both in our walk with Christ and our walk with each other. It's going to address every every issue and avenue of our lives. So summon! I just want to encourage you as we. Start through this book to allow the sword of the Spirit to cut us, to expose sin in our lives, to expose failure, weaknesses, and to allow the Word of God to cut them out as it does faithfully. We must also allow the fire of God's Word to Ignite our hearts with a greater worship of God and a greater love for each other. That should be a result of us studying this book together. And we must also allow our general to equip us, to give us the tools and weapons we need to fight against the spiritual forces of evil and our own flesh when we face every single day of our lives. So let's go. Let's get at it together. Let's submit our whole life to the Word of God and eat of the feast prepared for us in the book of Ephesians. And we start that today. Let me pray again before we move on and we look at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let me pray before we do that. Heavenly Father, we come before you and your Word humble. You are God and we are not. You are holy. You are perfect. You are without error. And because all scripture is inspired by you, O God, we know that the scriptures are without error and that they're profitable for every avenue, issue, experience that we have in life. It applies to all of our lives. God, I pray that you'd work through the scriptures as we start this study, that you would cut our hearts, ignite our hearts, and equip our hearts through this incredible book, and we'll give you all the glory, all the glory for what you do, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So let's start in the beginning, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now let's stop there. There's our author. The author of this epistle is the apostle Paul. Now who is Paul? We should get some context, some history here. Who is this Paul? Well, you need to know that Paul was a murderer. Paul was a a persecutor of Christians. Before, he was dramatically converted and changed by God in his testimony. Let's look at his testimony briefly. If you would turn to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, turn left a little bit in your Bible. Let's let's hear from uh, Paul himself on his conversion story as he describes it to the king Agrippa. So, Acts chapter 26, verse 9. We'll start in verse 9 and... Read all the way to 18. Here's Paul's conversion story. In his amazing testimony. Paul in verse 9 says this about himself. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition or in opposing the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. Now Paul is describing his life before conversion. Opposing Jesus of Nazareth, and he was set out to do many things in in opposition. In verse 10, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, one of them being Stephen. Remember the story of Stephen's martyrdom? And I punished them, verse 11, Often, in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Prime candidate for an altar call, isn't he? (laughs) You can just see this guy running to the Lord. No, he was running away from the Lord. And the Lord intervened. Look at verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus and with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, it is a futile endeavor to persecute me. Paul says in verse 15, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. In other words, I'm calling you out to send you right back in, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Amen. God dramatically calls the Apostle Paul and says, I know what you're going to do with the rest of your life. Instead of murdering my people, you're going out to get me more people. You are going to be used. A chosen utensil in my hand. In fact, the Lord tells Ananias in Acts chapter 9... He tells Ananias, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And we know the the history. Paul is a useful instrument in the Lord's hands. He did just that. He preached the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. What an amazing testimony. God intervened, dramatically changed the course of Paul's life saved him, but not didn't just save him, but called him to service, to be a useful instrument. That should be our prayer, shouldn't it? God, I just want to be a useful instrument in your hands. I just want to be used by you, Lord, to accomplish your will, to glorify you with my life, in every endeavor, any endeavor. Notice how Paul describes it If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This wasn't Paul's will. This wasn't another man's will. This was God's will for his life. And Paul entrusted himself to the Lord completely. What's God's will for your life? God can use anybody. How is he going to use you? Would you depend on him? Would you entrust your life with him? and Say, Lord, I just want to be a chosen instrument. Use me however you would. That's what Paul did with his life. This gives us a little history and context behind Paul. As he does the very things he was commissioned to do, he was chosen as an instrument to what? Preach to the Gentiles the good news. And Ephesus is the gateway to Asia Minor and the Gentiles there. He's doing what he was purposed to do. Paul doesn't just state his name, but he adds his credentials. Go back to Ephesians there, look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And we need to know something about uh, this uh, office of apostle. This was a unique office for a designated amount of time, a short time, during the foundational period of the church. Now, what are their qualifications? These capital A, if you will, apostles of Jesus Christ were men appointed by Christ himself. These would include the disciples who were obviously appointed to the office during Christ's earthly ministry. Now, Paul is unique in that he received the divine appointment in a vision or by Christ himself on the road to Damascus. We just read about that. So they were uniquely appointed by Jesus himself, apostles were, And they were unique representatives of Christ. They spoke and they worked directly on his behalf. In fact, specifically, apostles were gifted with prophecy. They had this ability to speak and write on Christ's behalf. In other words, the apostles' word was God's word. That's why, as we saw last week, Acts chapter 2, the instruction for the church is to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is God's word. This gift of prophecy, 2 Peter chapter 1 describes it this way These men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a unique office, and it holds weight to the whole letter entirely. It makes it more than just a letter from a man, but it makes it a word from God. That's why Paul states his credentials here. So this letter to the Ephesians is not just a letter of recommendations, suggestions, or helpful tips. It's not written by an MD, a PhD, or any other kind of title, credential. This is the apostle's teaching. Therefore, the authoritative Word of God. You know, some people treat the Bible like it's a book of suggestions, helpful tips. They kind of pick and choose the parts that sound nice or might be easily applicable today, and they leave all the difficult stuff for somebody else. That's not how we should treat the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all of Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. And it is profitable, and lists a... A ton of different ways it's profitable, for correction, for reproof, for training. The Word of God affects every every avenue of our life. So that's why I said it from the very beginning. This is God's Word. This holds weight, and that's why Paul adds his credentials there. Remember the authority behind these words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, not by his own will, not by another man's will, but by the will of God, He is our author. Now let's look to the audience that he writes to. The audience here. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now you need to know, just a little bit of background, that some of the manuscripts actually do not include the words in Ephesus in the greeting. In fact, they're omitted in some of the early copies of the manuscripts. Now, some use that knowledge and they doubt even the authorship of the epistle. And they say, well, this was an Apolline letter. Look at the style. It's different than the other epistles that he wrote. And so some even use that argument to go further and say that the book of Ephesians is not the authoritative word of God. They undermine the scriptures. I just want to encourage you, church body, to be wary of those kinds of speculations. Be wary of them. If an author, a commentator or whoever else says something or writes something that sounds contradictory or it sounds like a speculation or it sounds just not right, I would encourage you first to compare it to the words of Scripture. To compare it to the Scripture itself. Because if that man or woman contradicts the Scripture, then they're wrong. The Scriptures are not. Amen? Don't question the words of the The book, the scriptures, questions the words of that author and the commentator. And also, if you don't get the clarity that you need there to compare those words with other sound commentators, other trustworthy and faithful scholars, compare those words to see if that's just a crazy speculation out of left field or if it is actually sound. you got to know that people will always try to undermine the scriptures, and they'll Go through any door or any opportunity that they have a chance to. Anyways, back to Ephesians. There is a good defense for why some of those copies, manuscripts, may not have the words in Ephesus in them. One of the arguments is that uh, the original intended letter was to go to the Ephesians, but some of the copies omitted in Ephesus so that the letter could be spread to the surrounding regions in Asia Minor, so that the letter could be read. Further into Asia Minor after after it was read or, or read to the Ephesian church, due to the cr- grammatical structure of the greeting, the title of the letter, which is the same in all manuscripts, Ephesians, the early church fathers, and the majority of other manuscripts who affirm that it is actually a letter to the Ephesian church, it's sound for us. It's sound for us to believe that the Ephesian church was the intended audience. There you go. If you want to research more on that, you can come up to me afterwards and I can point you to some good commentaries. But what is the significance of Ephesus? That would be helpful for us to know as we read this letter. Why does Paul write to the Ephesians? Well, I have a map up on the screen here. Ephesus is a strategic location. It is first politically strategic. Who was the great empire that ruled during Paul's day? It was the Romans, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was so vast, covering areas of Europe, going into Asia Minor, even parts of Africa, that they separated their empire into provinces, smaller areas where a proconsul or a governor would rule. And so you have the area of the Roman Empire called Asia Minor, and the capital of the Asia Minor province was Ephesus. Ephesus, good. So it's the capital. There's political strategy there. Ephesus had a long history of being fought over because of its strategic position. It's on the coast there of the Mediterranean Sea, West Asia Minor. It's really called the gateway into Asia Minor or Asia from the West. So it's politically strategic. It is also commercially strategic. Ephesus was the largest training center in Asia Minor. It housed one of the largest and busiest harbors. The city was at the western end of the Royal Road that was built by the Persians under Darius. So to travel from east to west or west to east, one would pass through Ephesus. It was, because of that, a largely affluent city. People in Ephesus were rich, wealthy, well-off. It was both commercially strategic, politically strategic, the gateway into Asia Minor, into Asia. So you could understand why it is also gospel strategic. The Apostle Paul wanted to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He wanted so badly to be the first to preach the gospel in Ephesus. But it's actually an interesting story. Uh, The Apostle Paul was not the first to Ephesus. You know who was? Apollos. Apollos was actually the first to bring the gospel to Ephesus. But the apostle Paul was on his way in Acts chapter 16, and the Holy Spirit takes him on a detour to Macedonia. And then in uh, we see there in the text that Apollos in Acts 18 actually brings the gospel to those in Ephesus. He preaches the gospel, and some are saved, converted by the ministry of Apollos. And then by the time... Uh, Paul arrives in uh, Acts chapter 19, he finds people are already converted. He finds new believers, new converts. And, of course, he stays there for a time, for two years, and continues to preach the gospel. So that uh, Acts chapter 19 verse 10 says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? just shows you the strategy of being in Ephesus. And the incredible impact Paul's and Apollos' ministry made there, Paul was indeed a chosen instrument of the Lord to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. What's the religious environment of Ephesus? Here is a picture of the temple of Artemis. This is helpful to get some context to the book, to understand why Paul gives certain directions, instructions in the book. The temple of Artemis, this incredible piece of architecture, was housed in Ephesus. Artemis was the Greek god of animals, vegetation, and fertility. So you can imagine the kind of pagan rituals that took place in that temple. Lots of sexual immorality took place in the worship of Artemis. It was an incredible work of architecture, It had been torn down, destroyed, and then rebuilt multiple times. And even the ruins are there today. You can go and see them. But you need to know that this temple brought big business into Ephesus. A lot of tourists would travel to see the temple of Artemis. And the temple artifacts and idols were sold. In fact, it's kind of a funny story. In the book of Acts, you see that a silversmith named Demetrius He crafted silver idols in Ephesus for the temple of Artemis. And he was so upset with the Apostle Paul. Do you know why? Because Apostle Paul's gospel ministry was affecting his business. People were being saved, converted, out of their pagan idolatry, and they stopped buying Demetrius' idols. Do you want to upset a pagan businessman? Cut off the money going to his wallet. And he'll cause a fuss. And he did. He stirred up a riot in the city of Ephesus. A massive riot that actually the proconsul had to deal with. All over these idols being sold in the city. So we know that the Gentiles there in Ephesus were heavily influenced by this pagan worship. It's also called the magic arts. But it wasn't just Gentiles in the city. We know that there were synagogues that Paul preached in as well. And these Jews held these stubborn, stubborn traditions that they were not willing to let go of. Paul describes them as stubborn and unbelieving. So Paul deals with both peoples in his letter to the Ephesians. He reminds the Gentiles to no longer walk as Gentiles, pursuing sensuality, greed, and purity. He reminds them to put off the old self and put on the new man. He also reminds the Jews that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with them. To not be divided over ethnicity, but that they are all members of one body, the same body, despite ethnic differences. They are one in Christ. Doesn't some of those things sound familiar to our country here, America? We are an affluent country. We are rich. We are wealthy. And that leads us to similar temptations. Temptations that surround us are similar in nature to those that the people face in Ephesus. Temptations to be greedy. Temptations to be covetous. Temptations to be impure. Sexually immoral. But we also have a strong group of religious traditionalists that depend a lot on their own heritage. Their own upbringing. For their salvation. And the book of Ephesians reminds us you're not saved by your works or your ethnicity. You're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So we need to be reminded, as they were, to no longer walk as Gentiles and to trust solely and completely on the work of Jesus Christ for salvation. Just a note here in this, uh, to the saints who are in Ephesus, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. In Christ Jesus. At a first reading, you could think that those were two different groups of people. You have the saints, and then you have those who are really saints. You know what I mean? The faithful. These are the good Christians. You've got, you know, barely saved and really saved. Okay? The saints and the faithful. These aren't, you need to know that these aren't two different types of people. And that's not where the emphasis he- is here in the text. These are Christians, saints, who are believing, who are believing. The word pistos there, that is translated faithful in our translation, could also be translated as believing. Honer puts it simply, he says, the two characteristics refer to one in the same group. Paul further defines that saints are those who are believers in Christ, but in Christ is the key. In Christ is the key. In Christ modifies both substance, stu- substantives, Sorry, another word for noun. Saints and the faithful. Saints and the believing. In Christ is the key. See, that's what separates us from every other religion. Every other saint of every other religion. That's what separates us from the Catholic saints. That's what separates us from the Jewish Orthodox saints. Christians are Christians because they are in Christ. The only reason we are saintly... Or believing is because of Christ, not because of our own good works or our own mustering of faith. Being in Christ is what brought us to the table. His work, not ours. We need to remember that you're not a saint because of what you've done. You're not faithful because of what you've done, but what Christ has done on your behalf. We are in Christ. And that's going to come up over and over again in the book of Ephesians. Uh, I was once a pastoral assistant to uh, my previous pastor, Chris Mueller. And, uh, man, that job came with some good jobs and some great opportunities and also some pretty crummy ones. You know what I mean? Like the dry cleaning, weeding his front yard, those kind of duties, pastoral assistant duties. But, but I, I had some pretty amazing opportunities and got to sit and learn uh, from pretty amazing guys. And one, one such meeting, we were invited personally to uh, the Master's University by John MacArthur. And uh, I went along with Chris as his pastoral assistant, and I sat in a room with probably no more than 12 to 15 men, influential pastors in Southern California, and one of them was John MacArthur. And so it was the very beginnings of what is now called the Master's Fellowship, which is a fellowship of Christian churches in this area. And anyways, I got to sit in on that first meeting and hear from John and the other men as they talk about this new group. And it was pretty exciting, exhilarating. Listen, the humbling reality is that the only reason I was there in that room with those influential men is because of not me and my influence, but Chris Mueller. I was the pastoral assistant in Chris, if you will. He was my representative, and he was the reason that I was able to sit at the table there. Listen, similarly, Christian, you have a seat at the table. You have uh, access to all the riches of God and salvation, the riches of relationship with God, the benefits and blessings of a true salvation in Jesus Christ, but the only reason that you sit at the table is not due to your works or efforts, not due to your accolades or your heritage. It is because you sit in Christ. You are in Christ. And that is a good reminder for us. only reason we are saints or considered faithful or believing is because we are in Christ. Let's move quickly to the greeting. The greeting, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. This is not necessarily a unique greeting. Paul uses the same one verbatim almost in all of his other epistles, but there's two distinct characteristics here that we should look at. First is grace, grace. The second is peace, peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter uses the same two words in his greeting for the book of uh, 1 and 2 Peter, the books. John uses the same two words in his greeting in 2 John and Revelation. It's as if these two words have become a staple in Christian greetings. Grace and peace. What are the significance of these words? First, we know that grace is the means of of our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says this For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. That's the significance of grace. It's the means by which we are saved. We're not saved due to our own works, our own goodness. We are saved by grace. And peace is the result of our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 say this, but now in Christ Jesus, there's there it is again, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The result of our salvation is peace. Peace with God, which results in a peace with one another. I can't wait to spend more time in those passages to come. But it's worth noting, just for the sake of our verse this afternoon, where these two characteristics come from. Who is the source of grace and peace? Look nowhere else than from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't look for it anywhere else or don't expect it from anyone else. You looking for grace in the workplace? Looking for some grace at home? We can't look for it there. We can't expect it there. We know the ultimate source of grace is God alone, his perfect grace. Are you looking for peace? Everybody's looking for peace right now. Lots of division and hostility in our culture. They're looking for peace everywhere else but God, but the Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you forget Ephesians chapter 2 says, He Himself is our peace. Go to Him for peace. Only Christ can bring true peace. Grace and peace come from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, with this context in mind, we would do well to understand why The Apostle Paul writes this book. Why, Paul, do you write this epistle to the Ephesians? We understand why the the city is significant, why it's helpful for this culture who's divided between pagan idols and Jewish traditionalism, why it would be helpful for them to hear the gospel. Paul, we know it's your purpose and mission to reach the Gentiles with the message of the gospel, but why this book of Ephesians? Why this book? What is his purpose? Like I said from the beginning, you could really break this book into two sections. First, you have the calling, chapters 1 through 3, the riches of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And then second section, you have conduct, chapters 4, five, six, that describe how the Christian should then live. And really, the turning point, the connection between the two sections is the verse that I read at the very beginning. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Let's look at it again. Paul says, this is the the bridge between the two sections. Very important. He says, I therefore... Whenever you run across a therefore in the Scriptures, you have to ask the infamous question. What is that therefore, therefore? Therefore... Based upon everything that I just told you about the riches of your salvation, who you are in Jesus Christ, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Here's the significance of Ephesians. I have it in one sentence. Your life is not separate from your theology. Your life is not separate from your theology. This is so, so important for us to understand because there is this culture of hypocrisy that exists in the church today. Especially in sound, biblical, reformed, theological churches like ours. It's this disconnect, this hypocrisy that... Your home life, your work life, your school life, your gym life, whatever life can be separate from your theology, can be separate from what you say you believe. In other words, one can show up to church or a small group and they can articulate good theology. They can feign spirituality. They can provide all the right answers to the questions. They could even quote all the Bible verses, debate the theological nuances. They could appear mature, wise, studied, and then walk away and live no different than the pagan. It's a hypocrisy that the Apostle Paul directly addresses. Your life cannot be separate from your theology they are inevitably connected in fact your life is fruit evidence of what you believe you know she has the scripture memorized even proverbs 15:1 a gentle answer turns away wrath she speaks sweetly kindly gently at church but goes home and mistreats her husband has only sharp words for her children and gossips about other women behind their backs. See the disconnect between what she says she believes, her theology, and her life. Man, he can really lead a small group discussion on all the doctrines of salvation and all the others, but he doesn't lead his wife in an understanding way or his children to a knowledge of God. There's a disconnect between his theology and his life. Man, they are really prepared for small group. They did all the homework, the reading, and uh, they are really well prepared. But you ask their teacher or their boss about their work ethic, and they describe them as lazy, ill-prepared, half-hearted in the workplace or at school. Again, another example of theology being separate from your life. That can't be the case. Paul urges us, therefore, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Man, you may have MacArthur's doctrines of grace memorized. You may have the bevies of Scripture memorized. You may have studied through every theological nuance espoused by men. You may be able to articulate the doctrines of grace, teach Tulip to a six-year-old, recite Calvin's Institutes in Latin. But if your life doesn't match your theology The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Paul assures us, assures us, that even though our heads are the sizes of hot air balloons, we will not rise to heaven without being in Christ, believing in him, and following him with our life. The Apostle John puts it bluntly: First John two four, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Some at Bible Church, may that not be us. May we be a people that lives worthy of the calling to which we've been called. That theology isn't just something that we know up here, but that we live out in every avenue of our lives. So important, so important that it would affect our marriages, our relationships with each other, our work ethic, our purity, our love would rise up to the level of our calling. My desire for us in this series is not simply to convince you of theology and doctrine, to convince you up here. You know, whatever it is, there are a lot of doctrines that are. Talked about in here, the doctrines of grace, uh, ethnic unity in Christ, complementarianism is addressed in the book of Ephesians. And we'll get to these theologies and issues. We're going to allow the scriptures to speak for themselves. And these are doctrines that we hold to and a defense that we give and we find in the scriptures. But that theology and doctrine shouldn't just result in us being smarter, but us living holier. Us being filled with more love for each other and a greater love for God. That it would transform our walk with Christ and our walk with each other. That it would have its effect on our life, not just our mind. That's why Paul writes to the Ephesians. To urge them to live in a manner worthy of their calling. Our life is not separate from our theology. So, we are going to plummet the depths of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, in chapters 1 through 3. And as we do that, may we never forget the practical outworking of chapters 4, 5, and 6, which we'll get to as well. Last statement I'll make just to drive the point If we should marvel at the glory of our great God and Savior, the grace of the Father, the love of the Son, the security of the Holy Spirit, we cannot avoid the newness of life that comes with it. We must therefore put off the sinful habits of our past and put on the likeness, the righteousness, and the holiness of our Savior. Are you ready? I hope you are. I'm ready as well. I'm ready to lay my whole life down before the word of God to evaluate every aspect with you and to be applying God's word with you as we start this book of Ephesians. Let me pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. It's amazing to think about your holiness, think about your perfections, your sovereignty, your grace, your love. Lord, we can marvel at those things, speculate upon those things, talk about those things, God, but help us not be so detached from reality. I pray that The deep theological truths that we believe and affirm would cause us, Lord, change us and affect our lives to live it out. To be pure from the heart. To be godly examples. Husbands and wives, children. Lord, to be great testimonies in the workplace. To be united with each other. Lord, to put off those old sins, the old self that should no longer characterize our lives, and to put on all those good fruits, those good characteristics that come with a renewed life in Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd help us, Lord. We desperately need your strength and your help. I pray that you'd work in our hearts again, Lord, through this series, that we would surrender ourselves to you completely. In Jesus' name.